four, three, two, and one. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the Shit Method Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Michael, and this is episode four. And today with me, I have, I know I keep saying a good friend, a really good friend of mine, but it's true. This is a really, really good friend of mine. Katie Hoff, please go ahead and introduce yourself to the people. Hi, everyone. My name is Katie Hoff. I am currently the graduate assistant at the University of South Florida in their fitness department. Um, I recently graduated from Purdue back in May um, with a degree in applied exercise and health with some minors in entrepreneurship and technology innovation as well as psychology. Um, I actually met Damien there. He was the graduate assistant of fitness at Purdue. Um, so it just so happens that we're both down in Florida now, living it up with the palm trees, you know. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's been awesome so far. I love it here. Um, I also recently got my, um, I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist. So that's been exciting to have under my belt. Um, but yeah, it's my first couple weeks down in Florida with this new position and getting my master's in exercise science with a strength and conditioning concentration. Um, I guess I'll say I'm originally from New Jersey. So it's been really cool to kind of travel around to Purdue. And then I did an internship up in Massachusetts. And now I'm finally down where I feel like I you know, might be here a little bit longer in South Florida, um, yes. but I'm really excited to be here today. Yes, South Florida. <laughs> yes, thank you, Katie, for coming on. Um, you did leave out the most important thing in your bio, though, and that is you are a serial connoisseur, to put it lightly. Are you not? That, that is very fair, yeah. Serial is something that I do not take lightly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when this started, honestly. I mean, I always kind of remember, you know, going on vacation, picking out those big, like, packs of all the different types of cereal and then after vacation I would like have to go get the big box of like my favorite ones um and I, I mean maybe that's what started it um I'm always every time I go to the grocery store I'm always looking for something new um my newest endeavor has been the Oreos which apparently is like kind of a vintage cereal it was around like 30 40 years ago and they just recently brought it back in these last couple years so that nice. there's an exciting thing for you and you but, like to mix yeah. the cereals right this is true. I, I'll be honest, I haven't been mixing quite as much lately because, you know, we're, we're balling on a budget here. That's <laughs> but, but I do have two cereals right now. I have Honey Bunches of Oats in my pantry as well as, what's the other one? Um, what's the one with the marshmallows? Lucky <laughs> Charms? Think of it right now. Lucky Charms. Oh my goodness. Except right. I, bought, I think I bought it at Aldi's, so it's not actually called Lucky Charms. Oh, Charm. you got the bootleg? <laughs> so i've been mixing those two together and it's surprisingly not bad so it's art it's it's an art and it's a science as we're going to get into um (laughs) so yeah you can't just mix anything like a a bad mixture would be like reese's puffs with um like special k with berries like that would be a travesty like kind of hurt you wouldn't want to go there, but there, there is a science to it. Maybe we'll, we'll come back and revisit on a whole separate podcast, but absolutely. Yes. There could be a whole podcast on that, but all jokes aside, as Katie uh, alluded to in her bio, she has a boatload of experience. Uh, she probably won't talk herself up. That's my job to make sure that she does properly say all the things that she does. Cause she does a lot as we're going to find out. So we're going to focus on three main topics here on this episode. First one is going to be, around Katie's fitness experience in general. One, to talk her up, but also it's because since Katie has such a diverse background in fitness, her talking about her experience, I think will be really good for any young professionals who are aspiring to pursue a career in fitness, 
so they can hear about all the different opportunities that are available to you. Because it isn't just personal training. There's so many other things you can do. So it's good to hear from someone who's kind of done a little bit of everything. We're also going to talk about the psychology of coaching. And this is one of Katie's strong suits for sure. Um, this is something that we talk about all the time. It's something that she's helped me develop quite a bit as well as it's something that I try to specialize in is that client coach relationship, the why behind what you're doing, anything that has to do with psychology and client interaction. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about that. And then last but not least, we're actually going to give some tips on taking the CSCS exam uh, through NSCA. So any of my aspiring strength and conditioning coaches definitely want to listen to that because as Katie mentioned, both of us have recently actually just become certified. So it's been what Katie took it three weeks ago now, four weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. About a month ago. Yes. And I took it about two or two and a half weeks ago. So relatively recently, and we're going to give you all some tips and tricks that will hopefully help you along if you're studying or planning on taking the exam. So Katie, starting with that first point, just kind of let our audience know how you even got into fitness and coaching in general. Yeah, so I'll kind of be honest and transparent about it. So I was an athlete growing up. My family took sports very seriously. My dad was always my coach in softball, basketball, um, not gymnastics. He was not my gymnastics coach, um, but I did gymnastics. I played a lot of sports recreationally as well. They were kind of the, the center of my family's life. We did a lot of traveling for especially softball. I was a pitcher, um, so it took up most of our time. It took up all of our weekends um, and kind of that was my hobby and that was where all my friends were from. Um, it happened, I guess it was in eighth grade when I actually developed a really rare neurological muscular disorder. It still to this day doesn't really have a name to it, um, but it definitely impaired me from a physical standpoint um, as well as a mental, emotional, social standpoint because sports being the center of mine and my family's life, when this, when this was taken away, um, it felt as though there wasn't really anything else to fall back on. I didn't really have any other hobbies at that point in my life, so that was really difficult. I went to a lot of different doctors and specialists. I, I wouldn't even want to begin to think back at all the different places that we went. Um, but we finally, you know, going through physical therapists, rheumatologists, um, all these different like muscular um, children specialists, it goes on and on. Um, we finally kind of came across a solution um, and I started to get better over the next couple years. I could not play sports in high school, which was kind of, you know, a big dream of mine watching like softball from a young age wanting to be able to pitch on my high school team and maybe even play in college, which my sister's actually doing right now. And I'm very proud of her. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that's something that she got to follow through with. That would have been really fun um, for myself as well. Um, so kind of through physical therapy, that kind of sparked my interest in fitness. I didn't really like physical therapy because at that point it was a means to just get better. And I really wasn't able to get better through physical therapy. It came more through, I think, medication and kind of believing in myself and believing in my ability to recover, which me and Damien will actually talk about later. Mm -hmm. A lot of psychology to injuries that I wish yes. I knew about back yes. when I was struggling. Um, that, that really, I think that would have been a game changer for me because it was a really, really low point in my life. Like lots of really long nights of just crying and being really upset. Um, my family as well, it impacted my family, my friends. I lost a lot of friends through it. Um, I missed out on things like, you know, freshman field day, um, you know, making friends with people my freshman year, being able to go to dances and proms and things like that. So it was hard. Um, but kind of the, the light that shined through the silver lining of it was I did come to appreciate and have more gratitude for fitness and exercise in general afterwards. 
I never would have been excited about getting out of bed and going for a run. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm still not very excited about running. <laughs> but just exercise in general um, became something that I was very proud to be able to do, very excited to be able to do. Um, you know, because for a few years, it was painful to me to just to get out of bed and go brush my teeth, to walk around school, to yeah. go for a walk with my dog. Um, so I got really interested in fitness. Me and my mom signed up uh, to get memberships at Planet Fitness, our humble beginnings. Um, it was awesome. I was really inspired watching everyone work out there. And I would literally take notes on my phone, like, okay, this guy's doing an exercise where he lifts his arms out to the side. I'm going to look that up when I get home. So I got really into just like researching on YouTube and the internet, reading all these blogs, uh, magazines, you know, all that, that crazy stuff that you kind of start with. Um, and then fast forward to my junior year of high school. I was really persistent reaching out to this gym. It's kind of my roots. It's called Next Level Sports. Now it's called Next Level Arena in Flemington, New Jersey. I was really persistent. Like, I want a job here. I love this gym. And I kept emailing them and bothering the heck out of them until they were finally like, okay, let's hire this girl like a, like a kind of like a helper, like a front desk attendant. I didn't really do too much, um, but I would come in. They would train me, um, and I got to work out there for free, which was really awesome and exciting at first. Um, and that, that gym kind of had like a powerlifting hardcore vibe. So I got really into powerlifting and strength training there, which was really empowering for me going from being injured and losing my sports, which was the love of my life to being able to take up something similar to a sport, which is strength training or powerlifting. Um, I actually competed for a couple years. So fast forward going to Purdue, um, I joined the powerlifting barbell club and I started competing and that was really exciting because it gave me that competitiveness that I really was missing out on with sports. Um, about a year into my undergraduate degree, I became a personal trainer. I got to work with a whole bunch of different clients. Um, I even taught some silver sneakers classes and worked with older adults. Um, I really love working with older adults. You'll find that about me. Something I'm really passionate about is helping them out. Um, the next summer, I kind of got into strength and conditioning. So I reached out to a local gym in Pennsylvania and I worked with a lot of fourth through seventh grade football players. So <laughs> they were a lot to handle. It was group training classes, but I learned a lot about, you know, just having, making sure that the kids were having fun, you know, like it didn't really matter what exactly I was programming for them at, at that point. I thought it did, but then I realized like they just want to have a good time. Um, so that was a really, a really cool part of fitness for me. Um, and then kind of Moving forward from there, I became a strength and conditioning intern coach at a place called Cressy Sports Performance. This was two summers ago. Um, it's about 40 minutes west of Boston. That was a magnificent experience to work with, specifically baseball players. Um, they have a collegiate um, program over the summer where pitchers come from all different universities and colleges, and it's a group of about 40 to 50 of them, and they just train. They come in to pitch on certain days. They have bullpens on other days. Um, they work on their nutrition, and then I was one of the six interns that would coach them on a daily basis and play a role in their assessments and get to build relationships with them. Um, but I really got a diverse experience there, kind of a mix of everyone. We had older adults who were absolutely killing it. Um, we had younger youth athletes who were killing it as well. Um, so that was really cool and really exciting to get that experience. It kind of reinvigorated my love for sports performance and working with not just a general like clientele, not just the general population, which I love as well, um, but kind of getting back into that athletic population was really fun for me. Um, and then more recently, I've been taking on some more virtual coaching clients, which has been fun. A few of them actually from my personal training days at Purdue. Um, and I'm sure she won't mind me sharing this, but I have a really awesome client named Maddie who actually is in the Navy and she went through boot camp and 
I'm really honored to have been able to train her for the six months, six months to a year working up to that boot camp. Um, and it was really awesome. Recently, she reached out to me and she was like, I'm so grateful that I had that experience training with you because I feel like I was ahead of most of the people in my in my group here. Um, and she went through her boot camp and they're done with that now. And she recently reached back out to me and she was like, hey, I kind of want to get back into training with you now to keep up with everything. I feel like I lost a little bit um, of my edge and athleticism. So I want to get back into it. So that's been really cool. Um, kind of having this new challenge of working with someone who I don't really know a lot about tactical training and Navy and things like that. So it's been a, a big um, learning curve. And that's something that, you know, through all these fitness experiences that I've had is something that used to scare me a lot. I was always a scare, always very afraid of new experiences and new things, maybe things that, you know, I, I couldn't be perfect at, like you were kind of talking about um, before in one of your other podcasts, mm -hmm. you don't, you don't like to fail. You don't like to feel that you can't master something. So this yep. has kind of been a great example of that. And then probably an even better example is my graduate assistantship because I was just kind of, you know, I started over the summer, but you're thrown into a lot of things that you're not really expecting. Yep. Um, deep end and, and swim. That's how it's going to be a lot of the time. What, what was that? Just going to be throwing you into the deep end a lot and hopefully learn how to swim a lot of the time. Yes. So I definitely feel like my ability to adapt and kind of work on the fly has just been absolutely expedited ever since um, working in this GA position, which has been really, really awesome because like I said, I've been working in this fitness industry for, I think this is my sixth or maybe seventh year. And I've kind of been all over the place with the populations and the people that I've worked with, even locations in the country has been all, all over the board. Um, but this is the first time I've really taken that leap um, to take a leadership role in a way. So now I'm kind of able to lead the personal trainers and lead different programs at USF within our rec department. And that's something that I was scared of for a really long time. Like, I'm just going like, to lay low and like stay where I'm at, stay where I'm comfortable at. Um, but it's been really cool to kind of have this new focus on like, okay, I'm kind of at the, the head of the ship in some circumstances yep. and I'm going to want to make these decisions. It's, it's been scary, but that's kind of uh, the background of my fitness experience and where I, where I am now with it. Yeah. So we've only been a few minutes in this podcast and as y'all can clearly see, a boatload of experience, even before Katie got certified, she had been an athlete. She had participated in physical therapy. She had tried to work for a gym and then also had some experience with, uh, you said it was weightlifting, Katie? Powerlifting. Powerlifting, excuse me, with powerlifting. So even before being certified, she had all this experience and then got certified and then got more experience in other fields. Like she said, working with all different types of clientele. You even had some research experience, right? Both in, you had some in undergrad and you currently have some right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I could talk about that a little bit. Um, so at Purdue, we do have exercise science and kinesiology research, but one of the first things that stuck out to me um, was kind of researching in a different area. Because like I said, I've already been kind of, you know, really delving into all this evidence-based stuff in fitness. And I was like, I kind of want to see a different, a different aspect of the research that's still similar. So I joined a lab that was in more of an epidemiological perspective. Um, so it was obesity research, but it was interesting because it was focused on youth sports programs and how they can be used um, to kind of decrease things like obesity and other health markers, um, improve the quality of life in those children. So Indiana, as we know is, or as you may not know, is one of um, the states that has the highest rates of obesity in the country. 
So that was kind of what the research stemmed from was kind of tackling this problem. Um, so we were creating these modules that would help coaches to be able to motivate their athletes a little bit better. So we talked about intrinsic versus ex extrinsic motivation. Basically, we wanted to see if we give these coaches um, th these types of trainings, if we can train them to be better coaches and to motivate their athletes better, will we increase the amount of time that they're active during their practices? We would put little um, pedometers or trackers on their uniforms, and we would actually see if they were having moderate to vigorous physical activity for longer periods of time when those trainings were used versus when they weren't. Um, so we spent a lot of time kind of going to these kids' practices, talking with the kids, asking them about their nutrition. We would kind of track what kind of snacks they would eat um, during their practices and talk with their coaches. So that was a cool experience because it really blended, you know, social psychology with epidemiology, with obesity research, and a little bit of exercise science. Um, so that was really cool. I'm glad I had that experience, but it is not the research that I want to be in for the long term, I don't think. Um, so here at USF, our exercise science department is extremely research focused. Um, if you or anyone listening in is interested in exercise science research or just getting a master's in exercise science, this is definitely a terrific place to come. Um, we have all of our professors are, they have their own research labs. So the one that I am the most involved with right now is Dr. Campbell's um, physique enhancement lab. So it's, it's pretty simple and he talks about it this way, like, we're not doing anything, you know, crazy. We're not curing cancer. We're not, we're not, we don't get funding for big projects because the, the questions that we're asking are really simple. It's how can we improve body composition? How can we maximize um, muscle adaptations while also minimizing, um, you know, losing that muscle during a diet? So his research has kind of evolved over time. He used to look at strength athletes and powerlifting um, and bodybuilders. And now it's kind of, focused really on um, physique, physique enhancement. So particularly women, a lot of our studies have women. Um, this semester, the two studies that we'll be running are really interesting. One is a two week rapid fat loss study. So we wanna see um, with two different types of, you know, cutting calories. One is like a 50% cut for a week. The other one is, and, and then you go, you go back up to your baseline. And then the other one is a 37.5% reduction. And we want to see within those two weeks, are you able to hold on to your muscle mass while you're rapidly cutting this fat loss? And that would be applicable to someone who's doing like a bodybuilding show or they're, they're peaking for a powerlifting meet or something like that. So it's not like your average client. It's right. very special. And then the other study that I'm more interested in is the protein study. So we're taking people who are untrained. They don't normally train we're giving them resistance training programs. They come into our lab and they do them. Um, and we have three different groups. We have, we have a control group. We have another group that is actually tracking their protein and trying to hit one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which we know is very difficult, especially for people who have never done that before. Yeah. Um, getting enough protein is, is hard. Um, and then the other one is interesting. It's kind of more of an intuitive protein group. So whatever you eat protein, that's high in protein, you're doubling it. So for example, if you normally have two eggs for breakfast, you're going to have four eggs for breakfast. If you normally uh, have breast, you're going to have two. And we're going to see if doing that works just as well with improving your body composition as if you were to actually meticulously track. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that was a lot, of, a lot of detail, but that's kind of what his research focuses on is just how can we lose fat and build muscle, um, which is what a lot of fitness people are interested in. So I'm 
I'm really cool to see where this research goes and evolves over the next couple of years and hopefully get to play larger roles in this research over time. Oh yeah, and like I said, a good reason to show this is look at all the different avenues you can take if you are in our field, right? There is strength and conditioning, physical therapy, there is personal training, there's research, there's sports psychology, right? You don't just have to be only, a, nothing wrong with being just a personal trainer. Being a personal trainer is an amazing profession. But there are so many other things that you can do in or with personal training or just in a separate route if personal training isn't something you want to do. And like I said, take it from Katie, who's kind of, you know, had a little bit of experience in all of it. So showing that it can be done. Uh, so thank you, no, Katie. That's, for, that's oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's a really good point and something that I've been thinking a lot more about um, recently because even going into this program, I kind of thought of it like, okay, I'm going to do my graduate assistantship and I'm, my master's degree is probably going to be to advance, you know, myself in the strength and conditioning or sports performance or personal training world. But as I've been talking more and more with the different professors that I have and through their research, um, they've kind of shown that there's so many different avenues we can go with this that now I'm even considering going more the academia route and maybe pursuing even a PhD and just focusing more on research, like just being a researcher and nothing else when I'm older, like kind of foregoing yeah. the personal training and <laughs> strength and conditioning, which I never would have thought would be like a thought in my head that I would <laughs> be coaching people. Right. Um, but now it's kind of one of those options up in the air that I'm considering. So it's, yeah, Damien's absolutely correct there. There is a ton. There's a ton out there. You can work with you, you could even work with people with special needs or disabilities who yep. are in a, a rec department who want to play sports like that is within our realm of, you know, our, our industry. So it's, it's cool. Absolutely. And one of the, the last talking point we'll do about Katie's fitness experience is kind of the only thing that she really hadn't done. She's currently doing, which is she's worked at campus rec before, but now she is actually in a leadership position at a institution. So I know Katie, you've only been there for, a short period of time, but can you just kind of talk about that transition going from purely personal trainer to now being the leader among trainers? Yeah, definitely. So it's been a challenging transition. You know, all of a sudden you find yourself kind of doing what you normally do, um, kind of going through the motions of how you normally work, but then you're realizing like, oh wait, I have all these people underneath me now that I need to make sure I'm taking care of at the same time that I'm taking care of myself. So mm -hmm. it's an added layer of responsibility, but it's a really, really fun and exciting one um, because it, it, it's even more fulfilling because my main goal with this graduate assistantship is to, I, I don't want to create more followers. I don't want people to just be dependent on me for what they need. Um, I want to create more leaders um, beneath me. So that's kind of something that I've really been focusing on like that's kind of my big vision is that I want everyone in our personal training team to be leaders themselves um, and to be autonomous and independent so it's that's definitely been a hard transition for me because you know you you have to you have to supervise people you have to make sure that you're giving them what they need yes. but there's a fine line of like you don't want to give too much or else you feel like you're micromanaging people or yep. you don't create that buy-in and trust mm -hmm. so I've kind of been I won't say struggling with it, but it's definitely been a challenge um, these last, and even over the summer, but now that I'm physically here and I physically got to see um, some of my students and trainers, it's really come to life, like how fun this is going to be. Oh, yeah. Them. 
you might, one might say it's a bit of an art and a science when it comes to management of people. Is oh yeah, like there's so, that's very fair to say because in some of my courses at Purdue, I had these management and entrepreneurship books that I would read and like, you can read those books all day, but when I'm actually working with, with humans and, and the people that I'm working with, like, you don't just open up to page 52 and are like, oh, this is what <laughs> management book, like, this is what yep. you have to do in the situation. Like, there's so much gray area within Absolutely. the block. Was that similar to your experience as a GA as well? Yeah, I can sum up my GA experience and that whole gray area. That's something that Katie and I love to talk about, the gray areas, the, you know, you can read, read, read all day, but at the end of the day, you have to take action. I, I use one quote to summarize that, and it's a little blunt, but I, I just love the simplicity of it. And it's actually a quote by Mike Tyson, which is, uh, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face, which is, it's true. Like, you can read all the books you want. You can be prepared. You can, you know, study how to be a manager 101, how to lead a team 101, uh, you know, how to use Excel 101. And then on the first day, something that you never could have imagined happened probably is going to happen. And you're not yes. going to have the tools. You're not going to be able to control effort. You're going to have to figure out, oh, crap, how do I solve this thing? And that comes with experience. That comes with getting comfortable in gray areas and getting comfortable with saying, okay, I've learned a decent amount. Now I need to actually you know, put pen to paper and do some work and get it done. So yeah, my experience was very similar. Katie and I, in terms of temperament, are very similar in the like to study, research, study, research, be as prepared as possible. But at the end of the day, you know, you just gotta, just gotta do the damn thing, right? Right. And I, I would even say that like our, our current environment with COVID-19 has kind of forced people to adopt more of this flexible mindset that we're talking about. Um, just an example, you know, with our gym at USF, we were supposed to open in July. We were getting all ready to open. We find out we're not opening. Then we're supposed to open <laughs> August, we're getting ready to open. Oh, we find out we're not opening. Then yep. we're supposed to have personal training. We're told, oh, we don't have personal training. A week ago, we're told, oh, we have personal training now. So it's like, you can plan as much as you want, yep. but in a time like this, it, it doesn't it's always- It's better to almost not plan as thoroughly <laughs> yeah. because you're going to probably waste time. That's fair, yeah. That's why yeah, I so teach my trainers to be adaptable, like I talked about in the previous, in previous podcast, because adaptability- over, you know, studying is going to, you know, lead you to success more often than not. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Very cool. So Katie was kind of segueing very nicely into our next talk when we started going on about autonomy and all these fancy words, right? So we're going to get into the psychology of coaching here. Again, something that Katie and I could talk about for hours. We're going to try and sum it up real nice and put a bow on it for all of you. So the first thing that I want to talk about, Katie, is this concept of client-centered coaching. So when you hear that phrase or you hear uh, coaches or literature talk about that phrase, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I'll actually kind of go off of what I've heard you say before because I, I love the way you put it when you say that your client or your athlete or whoever you're working with is the author of their story. So you're kind of, you're there to guide them and you're there to be supportive and encourage them and empower them. But they have to be able to support, encourage, and empower themselves as well. So like Absolutely. the client is at the absolute center of everything. It is not you. It is not me as the trainer. We're not the ones in the center. Like it is them. And we're there kind of in the stands um, guiding them along this story. But they are definitely the ones in charge in a way. Like, like they're your boss. 
Absolutely. And the best way I can explain this, and Katie did a really good job illustrating it, is most people don't respond very, there's very few people that respond very well to the drill sergeant personal trainer mentality, right? Like, yes, there's a time where you might have to, you know, be more informative with your cueing and your direction because people are new to the process, right? That's a given. You might have to be more uh, directional with them in the beginning. But as training goes on, if you're doing them right as your coach, if you're trying to set them up for success as best as possible, it should come to the point where they're almost leading the session. I know people might be hearing that, especially young coaches or aspiring coaches, meaning like, well, you're the coach, you're the expert, you have the knowledge, like, shouldn't you be like leading and in charge of everything? It's like, in some instances, yes, you're writing the program, right? You're providing in some instances, but later on, they start providing the cues, right? There's some things that you will always be in charge of. At the end of the day, if we keep holding our client's hand and in charge of everything, they're not going anywhere. I like to say that the best business model, or it's technically a poor business model, but in my opinion, it's the best business model, is for my client to no longer need me, right? Because one, I wanna yeah. make sure that I can work with someone, they can adopt a behavior, maybe even spread it to their friends and family, and then be on their way and maintain that. So that way, I, then I can go work with someone else and hopefully help influence them in their process. So right. kind of tie that up. Yeah. impacted so many more people by doing that. Absolutely, right? And if you stay with one person, not saying that you can't have a lifelong client, right? There's always gonna be people who just like want a challenge from you and they wanna see you like once a week or something like that, that's fine. But if you're having trouble with a client, you're having them for two, three, four years and they're not getting anywhere and you're still holding their hand, maybe you're doing them a disservice at some point and it might be time to find a way to help them branch out. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that perspective. I feel like I've kind of experienced that myself a couple times with a few clients. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about that and agree with that because I've, I've felt the same exact way where I'm like, okay, if I wasn't here, would they even be exercising at all? Like, would they yep. even feel empowered enough to go to the gym on their own and to do something? And then yes. it almost makes me feel bad. It makes me feel bad in a way. It makes you feel good, but it also makes you <laughs> feel bad because how sustainable is that? Like, what if I wasn't here? And then what would happen? Yes. You know, like you want it to be sustainable. If That's a good way to put it. I like that. If I wasn't there or if for whatever reason, like I'll take my online clients as an example. If I went MIA for a week, will they be okay? And I'm confident to say all my clients will be fine. There's numerous times where I write a program for them and for whatever reason, the gym's busy or a piece of equipment just happened to get taken offline. And they're like, yeah, this wasn't available. So I switched this and they did a perfect switch. It's what I would have done. And I'm like, wow, you took knowledge that we've worked together on. And without me even saying a thing, you implemented exactly the way that your coach would have done. That makes me more happy than anything when I hear something like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very rewarding feeling that feels really great from a coach's perspective. Yes, it does, yes, proud, it does indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so with client-centered coaching, though, there are certain things that we, as coaches, like to work on. And when it comes to the psychology portion, like I said, Katie and I really try to put emphasis on this because we think this is what leads to the most amount of success. And a big part of success is client buy-in and trust. So Katie did, we, we did a presentation in, um, what was it, St. Louis, was it St. Louis? University of St. Louis, Missouri? Yes, yep. We, we did a presentation in St. Louis, Missouri, and part of the presentation was actually on building trust with clients. So Katie, can you talk a little bit about 
how you work to build trust with your clients? Yeah, so I'll kind of jump ahead a little bit and talk about Conscious Coaching, which is the book that kind of got me into the research side of building trust. Um, so there, there's a book written by Brett Bartholomew called Conscious Coaching, and he talks about the art of coaching. Um, he talks about how there's an art and a science. And one of the most important points that he hammers um, throughout the entire book is trust and creating that sense of trust or buy-in from your client. Um, so some things that he kind of, you know, influenced me to think about more is what like specific things can I do to really make my client trust and believe in me, like to believe in me and believe in themselves. So honestly, the first one that always comes to mind is making them laugh. Um, it's really underrated. Like humor is one of the best ways to get people to trust you. Like if you can relate to someone on a level oh, yeah. to where they will laugh, there's, there's an immediate connection there. Um, so that's something that I used a lot, definitely two summers ago with the athletes at CSP. Um, I feel like sometimes we were laughing and joking around more than they were working out, but that was awesome <laughs> because especially for the first few sessions with them, like that was more important than, you know, perfecting their set of single leg deadlifts. Like yep. it was more important that they could trust me as a coach and as a person that they could talk to, not just a coach, but like, like a human and a person that we could have a conversation and, and really get to know each other. And I still talk to some of them this day. Um, which is really a great feeling that really tells me that we did build that trust. Like they wouldn't still be, you know, joking around with me and talking with me today if, if I didn't do a good job doing that. So making them laugh, making them smile, making sure they're enjoying themselves. That's first and foremost for me. Um, being authentic. So, you know, not pretending to be someone who you're not is, it yeah. sounds cliche and everyone always says it, but it really is super important um, in when you're working with someone in this space, because people can tell right away that like, you know, kind of going back to what you said, someone's trying to be the stereotypical like drill sergeant coach with like yeah. their arms crossed and like the whistle. <laughs> and it, that might not be who they are. And maybe it is, and maybe it works with their population, mm -hmm. but maybe it isn't who they are and maybe it doesn't work with that population. So being authentic to who you are, that will shine through and it will show itself in your clients and your athletes, whoever you're working with. Um, the next one that I like to, you know, think about and use um, is empathy. So being incredibly empathetic. Um, that for me, I don't know, that one is right up there with making them laugh. And I feel like it, yeah. it kind of goes hand in hand because if you can understand what someone's going through, then you can connect with them on that deepest level, um, which is absolutely vital to the relationship and the training experience. And then kind of going back to what we mentioned before is the autonomy aspect. So making them feel as though they have a say and that they have input um, and that, you know, they provide you with value in a way, because we're not just providing value to them, like they're providing value to us because without mm -hmm. their feedback and their input, the program wouldn't be as like tailored to their specific goals. It wouldn't be as customized um, and we wouldn't have the same outcome. Um, so those are kind of my, my top like long-term building trust um, strategies. No, really, really good strategies. And like we mentioned, the main reason building trust with building relationships is ultimately adherence. If someone can trust you and buy into the process, they're more likely to adhere to you as a coach and be more willing to listen, right? It's just like when you meet a stranger for the first time, you're going to be hesitant, right? You're not going to necessarily want to believe everything they say or do everything they want. But if you get them to laugh, if you empathize with them, if you do all these various strategies, help gain and build trust in relationships, 
it makes the experience one, it makes it fun too. That's a big thing, right? If you guys trust each other and you start bonding, that just makes the experience fun. I, I like to say that when I work with my clients, yes, we're working, but it's, it's a social event, man. I have a blast when I'm working out with my clients. We're playing music. We're talking about life. It is a good time, but also they're sticking with the program and they're making progress at the same time. The one part that I really want to touch on further is the empathy side. If anyone knows Katie and I, we are very scientifically, actually, let me rephrase. We try to think scientifically as much as possible. I'm by no means a scientist. Katie actually does work with research, so she's definitely more uh, in the science realm than I am, but I do my best to think like a scientist. And the problem with that, and sometimes, and this is for young coaches as well, because I've made this mistake, is thinking you can research people. What I mean by that is, if I just recite papers to someone who has no idea what the hell I'm talking about, I can just get them to believe me, right? Why do people listen to certain people, right? Not to get political, but why do certain people watch one news organization over the other? Why do some people listen to certain podcast hosts over others, right? Usually it's because you trust the sorts of information. If you trust something, you're more likely to listen and adhere to it. So a big part of that, in my opinion, with that building trust is the empathy side of things, right? If someone doesn't think that I care about their emotions and their experiences and what they're feeling, most likely they're probably not going to listen to me or trust me because they're going to think, well, this guy's just invalidating what I'm saying, or we'll talk a little bit more about the pain stuff later, but coach is just saying this and that, and I'm trying to tell them how I'm feeling or tell them what's going on. And they're just spitballing research. Like, that doesn't work very well, right? Science can be there all day. It can be true. It can be factual. It can be objective. But if you can't empathize and get with the emotional side of your client, you're going to have a really tough time building trust. Katie, would you say that's, you have that experience as well? Oh, totally. Like they can tell when you are just there to like, you know, train them on a very one dimensional, like physical level. Like if all you're talking about is like the training and the science, like, you can see it on their face. They're yep. like, I don't care. I don't yeah. care. Like, and, <laughs> Most and people aside from us don't care. really care about the exercise. <laughs> right. They're there for social hour. Right. No, they don't. <laughs> they're there for social hour and they're there with like a certain goal in mind. They don't care like the intricacies of how what we're doing is going to get them to that goal. Like they just kind of want what to do and how to do it. And like, that's usually it. Occasionally, yeah. this is very rare. You'll find that client very who's rare. like, very like science and like research minded. So they will ask a ton of questions. Those clients are fun. They're yeah. also challenging because they will ask the really tough questions that I don't oh, yeah. always know the answer to. I actually had um, one of our programs at USF. We had a summer workout challenge where you meet virtually with your client. They get a four week program and you have a couple uh, like three 30 minute, like a pre, a mid and a post check-in. And my client was already very advanced. He actually went through the personal training prep course here previously. Um, so I knew he was coming in with some background knowledge and a lot of training experience. And he would ask me some really nitty gritty questions. <laughs> like, oh crap, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to yeah. write that down and I will get back to you in an email. Um, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, no, don't apologize. Like, this is cool because I'm not giving the same answers that I, you know, I'm used to giving people kind of like, you know, the same textbook answers. Um, but like, I'm actually being stretched a little bit further now and I'm being challenged and I'm like, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. Like it, it made yep. me uncomfortable, but that, that was a fun experience. 
Yeah, that's a big point too. Uh, people listening, if you don't know the answer, be authentic and say you don't know the answer. Yeah. Uh, because most of the time people can tell when you're bullshitting. It, not everyone, but you know, I have, I am a skeptical person as it is. And I'm very skeptical with the person who always answers in absolutes immediately. Mm-hmm. A lot of my answers as I get further in my career, it's a lot of, well, it depends. And sometimes, and well, we don't really know right now, but here's what we think. Like I could use those statements and answer probably 90% of it. There's very little I can say that I know for certain. There's like a handful of things like, you know, cows in, cows out, you know, volume and, right. and training load to failure for hypertrophy. There's a, there's a couple of things I can say for that we know pretty certain right now. Most of it we right. don't. And if you're not authentic with your client, oh, they're gonna, they're not gonna appreciate that at all. So be authentic and be able to say like, hey, I'll figure out the answer for you. So no big deal. But yeah. Right. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say kind of going back to what you were saying about you know, your, my experiences with when people feel you aren't being empathetic or people mm-hmm. feel like you don't care about them more as a person, I kind of wanted to go back to this quote from Brett's book. Um, I wrote it down. It's one of my favorites. He says, Sex, success depends upon the interactions of the physical, psychological, emotional, and social components of a training program. So like, he, he's really saying that treating your client as an entire person with complex and important needs and desires is like, the most important thing that you could do like yes it's completely like three-dimensional and complex and if if you don't respect that and you're not in tune with that like the training relationship is probably not going to be sustained if you're not willing to be comfortable in those gray areas or deal with the social and the environmental and the psychological factors then you shouldn't be a trainer that's part of the job it's it's I, i wrote in my blog post i believe it was the i think i wrote in the second blog post that Working with people is extraordinarily messy. It's not like working on a car. It is mm-hmm. nothing like working on a car. You have to take into account factors outside the biological, outside the physical and working with them. And to kind of wrap up this point on empathy, this is always something I use with my students. And it's, it's a little bit blunt when I say this, but it gets the point across. And that is, I always give the example of, and, and I say this in a joking way, but I've heard similar statements from coaches or from people who've been in gyms before and what coaches will say to them in the attempt to have them, you know, sign up for personal training as if this would work somehow. You want to be honest and genuine, like we said, but you also, you know, want to find a way to be kind and empathetic because here's the truth, right? If you have a client and you're doing their fitness assessment and you look at their BMI and waist circumference and it's high, you could be honest and say, well, you have a BMI of 35 and a waist circumference of 45. Uh, you're more likely to die an early death of cardiovascular disease. So it would be advisable for you to start exercising now. That sentence was completely truthful. Is that person ever going to come back to see you again? I would probably bet my life savings, which isn't much anyway, but I would bet my life savings that that person, there's a 99.9 repeated percent chance that they will never set foot possibly in a gym for a long time either because you were not giving the information in a polite, constructive, and kind manner because newsflash, people have feelings. Mm-hmm. As much as we like to say like, well, feelings versus facts, not like, no, like that doesn't matter. Like you have to take into account how people feel. It's almost just like genuine respect and 
you know, common decency, right? The best way I like to say when, when I have those conversations with a client, if we are talking about weight, obesity, and health in general, I'll say, hey, listen, like, here's where we're at. I'll literally say it like this. Here's where we're at. And I know you said here your goal is. This is definitely an obtainable goal. It's, an, it's a win that you came in today and that you're actually taking a step forward to better your health. This is awesome. We're going to make sure we're moving in the right direction. I'm going to do everything in my power to keep you accountable. And I just need you to work with me along the way. And we're going to get you to a healthier place. I admitted that this is a point that we're starting at, that there's a healthier future and alternative, and that we're going to work together and be positive with each other. I didn't lie. I just was trying my best to be empathetic and not shun my client away, right? They're already coming in a position where they feel, you know, vulnerable, right? Especially when you're working with clients who might be, you know, dealing with obesity or things like that, where they're like, it was hard enough for them to even sign that paper and show up for the assessment day and meet a stranger who's, who is, and like, if you're a trainer who, you know, is in relatively good shape and they're looking at this person like, God, they're probably judging me and, and here I am. And, you know, there's a lot that's probably going on in their head. And the last thing they need to hear is someone telling them like, yeah, you're, you're in trouble, <laughs> you know? Right. right. No, we need to say something to them. That's actually going to help them in that moment and moving forward. Like I, I would bet that that person is going to come back and maybe they're going to even come back a little bit excited with a little bit more mm -hmm. fire under them because they know that they have someone who gets them and who is on board with them. And, and that's more important than anything. That's more important than them knowing what, what um, class of obesity they're under. <laughs> that's not going to help them in this moment. Like, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Agree with that. that information is more for us. It was what I'm, what I lean right. towards, like the classes, the, the BMI number, like if they, sometimes you get that scientific person and they really want to know and it really doesn't bother them. It's rare, but it does happen. But mostly that's for us. So right. yeah, that's, that's where I'll leave that at. So Katie, good job. Thank you for kind of outlining how you build trust with your clients. Again, really important. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but I want to kind of jump into these terms, autonomy and self-efficacy. So you mentioned it a couple of times already. So when you say autonomy, what does that mean? And then can you also kind of talk about self-efficacy and how that relates to training? Yeah, so I'll kind of start with self-efficacy because I was thinking about this one a lot today as I was preparing for this. Um, when a lot of people think of self-efficacy, they they think it just means confidence, right? Like, are you confident in yourself? That's your self-efficacy, but that's that's really not what it means. So confidence, it doesn't specify what like what the certainty is about. It's kind of more like you're generally confident, like that mm -hmm. you can maybe do something or you're confident about the way you feel or the way you look. Self-efficacy is the belief in your ability to execute behaviors that will produce specific results. So your ability that you can track your macros for a prolonged period of time in order to lose weight. Like your self-efficacy is the belief in yourself that you can successfully do that. You know you can do that. Um, you are able to meet a challenge that is ahead of you. Um, so I think that's incredibly important when it comes to working with our clients because like we said, if we want them to be able to do things on their own and kind of get to that autonomous state, kind of blending the two together here, um, they have to have that belief, belief in themselves because if, if their belief is in, you know, other people, if it's just in their trainer, if they're just dependent on their trainer and not, they don't believe in themselves to actually do the thing, um, then they're not really going to get very far. Like we were saying before, like you can only get so far without feeling like you have a little bit of control and you have some autonomy and you kind of are guiding the ship 
with, with the help of your trainer or coach, of course. Of course. Um, but it kind of turns into a success cycle in a way when you gain or maintain the self-efficacy through your experiences of success, it kind of gives you a boost in motivation to want to continue to learn or continue to make progress and vice versa. So it's this, this great cycle um, that I think is really good to get your clients kind of bought into once you can, you know, get them making progress. That's exciting for them. They're like, wow, I can do this. My self-efficacy is up then they're going to be more motivated. And then that cycle just keeps going. And then of course there's barriers and there's things that come up, but that's our job as coaches to be able mm -hmm. to step in and then help in those situations. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're not noticing the theme yet, it's adherence, right? So self-efficacy and uh, confidence in the ability to achieve or produce a particular behavior, right? That helps with adherence to a program. And if your client can adhere to the program, they're going to be successful, right? Uh, obviously, there's nuances with coaching and making sure your program design is, you know, as, as well up to date and as good as it can be. But at the end of the day, programming, in my opinion, is secondary to adherence because if the client's not adhering, you can have the best program in the world. I've said this before, right? You could be the number one programmer in the world. If your client doesn't show up to the gym, it doesn't matter. So with that comes self-efficacy, right? And I want to say, Katie, please, please correct me if you know off the top of your head. I know there's a, I want to say there's like seven main points in which self-advocacy is based off of, which is, you know, vicarious experience, uh, previous experiences with a particular uh, thing in, in our context, exercise, skill mastery. So if they have done the exercise before and they have some proficiency with the movement, um, having a positive experience in general, there are things that we can look for as coaches to see if there is self-advocacy being uh, involved in the program, or maybe if they're already starting from a place where they are moderately confident in something that they're doing. Um, am I missing a few things, Katie, or do you know off the top of your head other things that help improve self-efficacy? I, I haven't heard those before. That's actually all new to me right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. I'm, I'm going to stop before I, before I go any further. But yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a few things that you can look for in coaching uh, when you, that can help improve self-efficacy that you can implement as a coach or even screen for as a coach. Um, so those are things that definitely would be advantageous that you're looking for. Um, talked about autonomy a little bit. The last thing that I'm going to kind of talk about is one thing that I use as a coach along with what we call the TTM, the trans theoretical model for behavior change, kind of going along with confidence is one thing that I found very successful when I'm discussing goals with my clients during an assessment is I always ask them, you know, I use smart goal. It's very simple. I like it. At the very end, though, after you've gone through their goal, we've analyzed, like, make it specific, make it measurable, all that. I ask, what is your confidence that you can actually achieve this? And I give them the zero to 10 scale. Like, zero being, like, there's no way in hell, man. There's no way I'm going to do it. And a 10 being, oh, yeah, I got this in the bag. And I'll ask them, what's their confidence? And usually, they, they range, but it's usually somewhere between, like, a, a, a four and then, like, a seven. And then I ask them, okay, that's where you're starting what would it take for you to say 10 out of 10? Like, let's say I have a weight loss client and I ask them like, hey, you know, your confidence is a five out of 10 to lose 15 pounds in the next couple of months. What would you need to experience for you to say 10 out of 10, I got this. And they're like, oh, maybe if I saw that I was losing weight for a couple of weeks consistently, I feel like that would boost my confidence because that helps give you kind of landmarks to say, how can I boost their confidence? Which means I'll boost their self-efficacy which means that I'll boost their adherence to the program. So 
that might be a trick worth trying if you're programming or doing an assessment with your client. With the TTM model, so different stages, we have pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation uh, preparation, or some might use determination, as I just learned a few seconds ago when I was re-looking at the model, uh, action and maintenance, and of course relapse can happen in there. With those stages, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's just a way to find out kind of where your person is in terms of their willingness to change. So each one's divided into amount of time uh, to change behavior or engage in behavior. I'm not gonna go into each one in detail, but using this model can give you a really good idea of what strategies to use to help your person adopt the behavior. If someone's kind of in that uh, pre-contemplation phase, they might be like, my doctor said I need to be here. I don't really feel like coming. So you might have to use strategies that more so help them want to adopt the behavior as opposed to someone who's in a maintenance phase where they're already doing the behavior. So that's kind of something as well that you can use in your practice. So you make sure I got everything there. I'll add one more thing onto the option. <coughs> so um, I kind of think about this sometimes. So most clients, right, they want some autonomy, like we talked about, and that's good for us to give it to them. But I don't want to forget the fact or neglect the fact that there's some clients who maybe don't really want this or they don't want a lot of it. And that's okay. And, and that's okay to respect that. So I actually had one client right. at Purdue. Um, I'll shout her out, Grace. Um, she'll, she'll love to hear me shout her out here. Um, she would always come to our sessions and I would ask her like, hey, like, do you want to go up and wait here? Or how about, how about we try this? Or how about we do that? And she would be like, nope, I am just, I'm your client. Like, I think she even said, <laughs> like, I'm your like experiment or something. Like, you know, she would always say like, body by Katie Hop. I just want you to like, do whatever you want. Like, I'm just here to work out and yeah. you tell me exactly what to do. So she, she's a very, very busy, like studio student. Um, and she didn't want to have to really think too much when she came in. She just wanted to put her head down and work hard, which she did really, really good at. So there are going to be those times and those yes. clients who, who don't want to do that, that kind of level of autonomy where they have to think and they have to like make decisions. They just want you to take complete control. They don't even want to select the weight. Like if you want to <laughs> bump it up five pounds, like they, they don't even want to like think that much because yep. they just, they want it to be the trainer's job, which it's kind of interesting to see that kind of blend because then there's other people who thrive off of being given that autonomy. So that's something to kind of learn about your client along the way. No, that's a very good point. Right. And again, it's having that flexibility as a coach to notice what your person needs and how they're going to respond. So in that example, yeah, heck you can, it's okay to take a little bit more control in that situation. Kind of, Moving on to our last little section on the psychology of coaching, and that's going to be language. And this is an area that I've gone into a lot in the last, I'd say, roughly two and a half years. Um, if you haven't read my most recent blog, blog post, uh, Pain and Perceptions, I would highly recommend checking that out after this because there will be a lot of words we discuss, and I'll do my best to define them. But the importance of our language as coaches and how it relates to pain and perception when it comes to training, right? We know that a lot of people in the country have some form of pain or chronic pain, pain lasting longer than six months. Uh, it was reported in 2016 that about 50 million Americans reported having some form of chronic pain. At the time, that's, I think, just under 20% of the country. So one in five people we could estimate currently have some kind of chronic pain, right? So that's a lot. Um, and there's other stats as well in terms of, you know, uh, 
at some point in our life, 80% of us will have some form of lower back pain, yada, yada, yada. It, it goes on and on. The thing that we find in research is the way that we speak to our clients can actually influence our client's perception of exercise and the pain experience. What I mean by that is, let's say, and, and we won't go too far in the weeds in this because my guest on next week, we're going to go really into detail on this, but we'll, we'll do a little, little bit of it here. If I'm talking to my client, and let's just say I have the idea that, you know, if your knees go past your toe in the squat, it's bad for you. That's not accurate. It's an old tale that, that has been espoused because I used to think that it puts too much shearing force on the patella or on the knee joint of itself. It's not true, but it is something that used to be viewed as, as uh, correct. And in my experience, most people say that because they want to protect their client, right? It is our job first and foremost to ensure the safety of our client. We don't need people getting hurt because if you're hurt, you can't train. However, if I am giving false information to my client and creating fear, even if it has good meaning, I can actually influence my client's perception of a situation. And you can actually enhance or create a pain experience. Now, people are saying, what do you mean pain experience? What do you mean creating pain? Pain in and of itself, the phenomenon that pain is, is something that is generated in a complex process. It's, it's still not completely understood, the whole thing, but in a way that certain stimuli are transmitted to the brain, the brain then interprets the data and then produces a sensation we know as pain in a respective area. The issue is the experience is not just based solely on biological stimuli. That's one part of the equation, but it's also based on psychological and you know past experiences and emotional state and views or perceptions of a current situation. So like I said, you can create, you can make the deadlift or the squat with knees past your toes a scary exercise. You as a coach, as a doctor, as a physical therapist, have a lot of power with your language and how you can influence your client's perceptions of an exercise. Katie, can you just kind of talk about your experience with language and, and coaching clients? Maybe how it's evolved over time or your kind of understanding of how pain and, and injury works with language as well. Yeah, I mean, I think language as a whole is really important for everyone um, everywhere. So not just in personal training and coaching, like the way that we address things, um, you know, in our world and our environment, I think language is usually at the center of where a lot of conflict starts, like mm -hmm. the way that people perceive um, you and the words that you use and the tone of voice, like there's so much that goes into it. Um, and, and I felt of, as though with a lot of clients that I've probably, you know, affected some of them in a negative way when I first started working yeah. with them because I didn't I'm know. About I'm them. guilty of it. Yeah, I've guilty of charged. I would use certain words like we're going to do this exercise to, you know, protect you from injury or this is to reduce your injury risk. So kind of putting those words in their head that kind of keep your back perfectly in. straight at all times or your disc are going to explode. I'm yeah, being like, facetious, but <laughs> so like, yeah, you're kind of putting them more and more into a box where like psychologically, physically, everything they're like, well, if I deviate anywhere outside of this, I am now at risk of being hurt. That belief 
like believing that that is real is enough to actually make it real, which is yes. actually crazy. And I wanted to bring up the study that we talked about in that presentation, the one with the, arthros uh, the arthroscopic debridement for people yes. with osteoarthritis. That, yes. so this blew my mind. Do, do you want to talk about it? Just because you are the one who brought that study in. So Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, and please, if, if I'm missing any details that you remember, help me out. But there is a study done by, and this is also in the uh, blog post number two, study by Mosley. Uh, and he did a, um, a comparison on surgical procedures for knee osteoarthritis, right? So damage to the knee cartilage, uh, people had, I think it was either low to moderate knee osteoarthritis, and they were candidates to have arthroscopic surgery, meaning they would go in with tools, clean out the joint, get rid of all the debris, the loose fragments of cartilage to clean out the knee in the hope of hopefully reducing pain and increasing function, right? So they took a group of about 180 or so people and they divided them into three groups. They divided them into the typical arthroscopic surgery. They go in, camera, tool, water, they clean out the joint, they grab all the debris and that's it. That's one. Second group was called a lavage group, which more or less is just filling the joint with water and removing debris instead of using a tool to scrape out. And the third group is a placebo group. Now, if you're thinking, what do you mean a placebo group? It's a surgery. They did what's called a sham surgery. And it's exactly what it sounds like. So this group, these 60 people in this, in this placebo trial, they would give them an opioid and uh, oxygen to mimic as if they were going under mild anesthesia. So they were kind of in a, in a, in a quasi anesthetic state. And then the doctors, or the, the, the doctor, it was all the same doctor, would make incisions as if he was going to do the arthroscopic surgery. They would even spray water on the joint to simulate as if, you know, lavage or, or arthroscopic surgery is being used and to simulate the sound of water being squeezed. But as soon as they did that, they would stitch up the incision and send them into the recovery room. So you didn't know if you got arthroscopic, lavage, or placebo. And they found out from two weeks later up until I believe it was two years after they compared what was your pain level likely? Did your pain get better or worse, stay the same? And what was your knee function like? Did it get better or worse, stay the same? Across the three groups, there really wasn't much of a difference. Meaning if you right. actually had a surgical procedure that cleaned out your knee joint versus if you believe that you did, it didn't really matter. And right. Katie, I think, brings up this point to show that just as placebos can be powerful, in the pain experience and the injury experience, just like you were mentioning how complex it is, the term nocebo, meaning creating negative expectations with language, can have a detriment on your client as well. Katie, is that kind of what you were alluding to? Yeah, like, you know, this is a little bit like deviating off of language, but this also plays into perceptions and expectations. So like, I kind of like that, that topic of like, that idea of expectation. So like this mm -hmm. expectation that we created was literally fulfilled. It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like we told them that this thing was true and then it came true. Yep. So our words, our thoughts, like all of those things are just as important and just as powerful as like actions themselves, which is just like, when I read this study, that was mind blowing to me. I believe there's also another study where and, and I don't know like where this study was, was done. I don't really know a lot about it, but I've, I've heard about it where 
they take people and they would use poison ivy and then uh, like rub it on their arm where they'd get a rash or they would tell people that it was a poison ivy plant but it wasn't it was oh, like, wow. a, like a normal plant and they would rub it on their arm and these people literally still broke out in a rash as if it was poison ivy which yeah. when I, heard that, I was like that can't be true that literally can't be true <laughs> placebos and nocebos are very complicated and there is some I, i've heard this before that some coaches will talk about how the placebo in of itself is a very complicated issue um, but part of the reason why it works, not wholly, but part of it is because of trust, right? This is where trust can be abused. Again, not necessarily in a insidious context, but just as kind of a, a natural occurrence, right? You have a coach, you trust them. They have a degree, they have a cert. They're there to help and protect you. That's their job. If that person who more than likely knows more than you do about exercise tells you, if you do this, this will happen the rational thing is to believe them. So if coach says, do not round your back at all when you deadlift, it's bad and you can hurt your back, there's a good chance that if you deviate from that behavior or from what the coach told you, you might experience something. And that's not to paint pain as purely that, as purely a language game, because it is not, it's much more complicated than that. But the whole thing we're trying to illustrate here, how coaches with your language, it's important that when you are talking about things, even in a safety context, make sure you're as up-to-date as possible because we want to make sure that we're making our people resilient, right? We don't want to put people in a box. Like I like how Katie mentioned that, right? Movement is very dynamic. It's varied from person to person without getting too off topic. But we want to make sure that we're making our people stronger and not afraid to move, not afraid to participate in being active because there's already enough barriers. There's no need to add more or make them scared during a session. We can be safe without having to do all of that. Right. Like you said, like the, the fear mongering does not help. It doesn't help our clients in that moment or in the long term. No, not at all. Anything else you want to talk about regarding psychology, Katie, before we move on to our last section? Oh, no. I think I'm ready for uh, our last se section here. Let's do it. So final part, how to pass the CSCS 101. So, as I mentioned, Katie and I recently passed. We were study buddies. We made it happen. We uh, got our cert within the last month. And, yeah, I think we have some, some decent resources that are going to help you out if you're looking to take it or if you're current studying for it and you kind of just want a little bit of an edge to help you out. Uh, just as kind of a disclaimer, we will not be giving away test questions here. We'll not be doing any of that. We do not want our cert revoked. So we're just going to give you some tips and tricks that we think were beneficial to us. Um, so first thing I'm going to talk about, uh, and Katie actually is the person who pointed me to this, so thank you again very much. And that was um, Matthew Castro, was his name, right? Yep, Matt Castro, yep. And he, he has a YouTube page, uh, I think it's called The Movement System, and he also has a, uh, some exam prep that's really, really helpful. Uh, it cost us $30, which we split, um, but it's basically a preparatory test, kind of like a practice test for the CSCS. And I thought it was extraordinarily helpful because when it comes to the CSCS, it's, yes, you got to know the information, obviously, like read the book. Like I know everyone says, read, you need to read the book. It's heavy. You just got to do it. <laughs> but a really big thing is understanding and getting comfortable with how they word questions. Yeah. And his test prep was like, it was wicked similar to the actual exam. So yes, he 
he had it proportioned to where if the exam is 30% nutrition questions, his practice exam was representative of that 30%. So he had less questions overall. I believe it was 101. Um, and he's expanded it since. I think it's 121 maybe now. Um, he added more psychology questions, but it was extremely representative. Um, the questions were formatted almost identical to how they are in the exam, the same mm -hmm. types of wording. Because um, there's other resources that we use that, you know, had much longer, more advanced and, you know, difficult questions and difficult answers where, and that was kind of getting us nervous. We were like, oh boy, is the whole exam going to be like this? Yeah. Um, and then after reading the reviews of, of Matt's study prep and his practice exam, which the study prep his I've heard is phenomenal as well. That's, I believe it's between a hundred and two hundred dollars, but that's like full like modules. Mm -hmm. We'll get everything with that. So that would be a great investment for a lot of people. We didn't do that, but I could see where it would be extremely um, helpful for a lot of people. Um, yeah, his questions were very like straight to the point, uh, which was very representative of the actual exam. I, I think you would agree with that, Damien. No, absolutely. And Katie did better than I did on the exam. Uh, you know, you can make fun of me if you want. It's whatever. But like I mentioned, and I know I'm repeating myself, but it's, it's something that I really want to hammer home. You need to understand how they ask questions. This might just be my brain and the way it works when I read, but when I was reading these questions, I had to read a lot of them two or three times. It, it reminded me a little bit of, for all my Florida people out there, it reminded me a little bit of the FCAT where the question was never straightforward and you felt like it could have been summarized you know, with half the words. I don't know if it's done purposely to distract or because it's just, you know, it's very, uh, very analytical the way the entire text is, is used, right? If, if you've read the book or have started reading it, it's very, very heavy reading. It's very, very science-based. It's, it, it's a deep dive on, on anything and everything. The questions are worded just like the book. So please, please get comfortable with the language, get comfortable with questions that are similar. Because you might know the answer, but you just don't understand the question. Like you might know, like, you know, the whole, you know, muscle contraction system, or you might know, you know, lever systems and lever classes or, or how to understand form. If you can't understand what the question is asking you, you're SOL. So really, really recommend Matt Castro's course because it's very beneficial. And I'll make sure to put a link down below so that way y'all can reference it. Um, yeah. And going back to what you said about the textbook, um, obviously, you know, read the whole textbook. That was very helpful. But yes. two resources in the textbook that we found very helpful, I think you did as well, Damien, mm -hmm. were the quizzes at the end of each chapter. Yes. Um, there's you know, the answers right in the back of the book. So you're able to check right away and then refer back to the book if you want to, like, you know, understand why a question was worded a certain way or why you got a certain answer wrong. Um, those are really great. I think I went through them like two or three times yep. um, and like re-quizzed myself over, t over time. And then one of the very last things I did before the exam was I went through the entire textbook and anything, I believe it's purple, like a big purple box. Yes. They had a lot of purple boxes within the textbook that was basically just consolidated important information. So any like big amounts of information that you would want in one spot were always in the purple boxes. Um, so I just took a bunch of like pieces, blank pieces of white paper. And I went chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And for each chapter, I would write down everything that was in the purple boxes. Yep. Cause that's, I almost want to say you could just study the purple boxes and pass, but I don't want to, <laughs> I, I wouldn't do read that. Read the damn book kids. <laughs> read, the book, read the book 
but specifically really focus on the purple boxes and go back over them like close to your exam time. I think that was helpful. Yes, absolutely. The, the quiz questions really help because the exam is A, B, C, so it's three choices. The book was, was four uh, choices yep. per question, right? So yeah, so if you do well on the book, and in my personal opinion, I thought the um, book questions were probably equal, if maybe not slightly more difficult than the actual exam questions. So if you do well on the quiz questions in the book, I think you'll be pretty well set up for success with the actual exam because you have less choices and it's not like all three of them are like identical. It's, it's definitely a, a better selection of choices than having four or five or six, like some tests do in college. Um, it wasn't like that. Oh my God. I couldn't or fill in the blank. Right. <laughs> the other thing that, yeah, right. The other thing I found, I mean, I think both of them sound very helpful was having a study partner. Uh, Katie took yeah. the exam. I think two weeks before me. So basically every day for a few weeks, we just met via Zoom call or video call. And we would just be like, hey, we read this chapter or these couple chapters today. Uh, what was the chapter about? We would kind of teach each other various subjects. We would ask any questions. We would make practice questions for each other. And then we would even do the yep. uh, books, quizzes, quiz questions and see if we could answer it. And if we got anything wrong or were confused, we would find it. We would dissect it and then we would figure out and repeat the whole process the next day. So right. you can find a partner. We powered through it. Yes, we, we did. We, <laughs> and we, we even took like a day or two off because one of us got busy and then we're like, yes. all right, well, to stay on schedule, now we got to do three chapters every Double day. Up. Yep. We made it work. Worth it. I am Absolutely. like, I am a like self-proclaimed, I do not normally study with people. I normally find it distracting and I'm very good at just like, putting my head down and studying alone. I've, I've really never studied with anyone, maybe a, a few times in high school. Um, so when Damien asked me to study, originally I thought he just meant like, we were gonna like study once for like an hour and then we were gonna <laughs> go over some things and then we'd be good to go. And then at the end of that hour he goes, so are you good with doing this every night at 9 p.m.? And I was like, every night like at first i was like i don't know if i have time for this but literally <laughs> thank you so much damien for like keeping me to that because that honestly might have been the reason that both of us passed and did so well was because of having that accountability and like yes. that consistency like we didn't just study once and then say ah oh, we're good enough like we held each other to a high standard of like accountability and really getting into the nitty-gritty of the details and making the quizzes for each other. And then, yeah, and then Damien throws on top, he's like, oh, how about we make quizzes for one another? And I was like, oh gosh, I don't have time for this too. Like in my head, I'm like, I can't do this thing. Damien's crazy. And then once we started doing it, I was like, nope, he was right again. This this was definitely worth it. Like, I love this. So, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, you were extraordinarily helpful as well. I mean, we passed. So I think something definitely had to work. Um, going back to, you know, reading the book and take one thing, like I mentioned, it, it's very, very wordy text and having another person there to help dissect or confirm. It's like, Hey, I read this. I think this is what they mean, but like, can you help me? Like, is this also how you interpret it is very helpful. One thing I found very helpful for the first half of the book, because half of it is pretty much like exercise science. The second half is more or less program design and form critique and things like that. So the first half I took, you know, very detailed notes and basically rewrote the first half of the book on my own. 
I know that sounds meticulous. It is. It's time consuming. But then you have a condensed version of the book that you can read on your own that's in your own language, right? So it makes a lot more sense when you go in, you trim the fat, and you dissect everything. And with the last portion, which is going to be kind of the last point, Katie, I talk about here, is the end, which was the program design, the form critique, and the exercise selection. And I'll say this, and, and Katie, I'll, I'll let you kind of tag in as well. Feel free to interrupt me. But this is a part that's kind of hard to learn by reading. It, it, a lot of it, when you take the exam, there are actual images and videos, and you have to interpret form correction, uh, safety techniques, and, and things like that. So if you don't have experience of actually working with people, this might be a more difficult section to you. Katie, would you agree with that? Or do you have anything to add in terms of like practical experience with that second half of the exam? No, I agree completely with that sentiment because I was specifically looking for a resource somewhere out there that would help me with, because I knew there was a part of the exams that was major, majority videos that you have yeah. to look at, dissect, and know if it was correct form, incorrect form. And I literally spent all day Google searching one day, like, where can I find the videos for the CSS <laughs> exam? Like, where can I practice this? Um, and everyone just kept saying, like, you know, the, the pictures and the textbook and practical experience. So I was like, okay, hopefully my practical experience will have been you know, sufficient for this because I don't know where else to look. Like they mm -hmm. do have some videos on the NSCA website, but they were pretty outdated and I, I couldn't tell if they would actually be useful for the exam. So, um, but going back to Matt's resource, I believe if yes. you do his whole like module um, and all of his videos, I think he probably dives completely into the video section for like multiple modules. So that would definitely be one where you, if you maybe don't have as much practical experience or you feel a little less, less than confident in, in that, part, um, I would definitely seek out that resource because I can guarantee that he covers it in, in depth. Absolutely. So kids, if you're listening, if you just tuned back in and you zoned out through that whole conversation, I'm going to give you the TLDR. I'm going to sum it up real nice for you. First thing is you can reach out to Katie. Uh, just know that if you're in the fitness profession, personal training is not the only thing you can do with a fitness degree or a health and kinesiology degree. You can go a million different routes. Please try a bunch of different things, especially COVID kind of exposed the fitness industry. You have to have a lot of different things uh, in your toolkit. You have to be able to adapt and potentially be able to go into various fields or work multiple things. So that opportunity is open, not just personal training. Secondly, when it comes to coaching, the big word you heard from us, adherence, uh, other things like self-efficacy and trust, those things, they're called soft skills. And actually, Michael Ray over at Barbell Medicine, he said this very well. Uh, I don't know why we call them soft skills when they're some of the most difficult things to learn and to teach people. Sometimes you, they're almost impossible to teach because there is a huge personality component to being empathetic, but they are skills that you have to work on if you want to be a successful coach. And lastly, with the CSCS, man, check out Matt Castro. Really big help. Find a study buddy to keep you accountable. Uh, and get some practical experience and just do the damn thing. Well, that's the last thing I forgot to mention is that my tagline, do the damn thing. Do you know who actually pointed out that I said that? Is this one right here. I, I don't know what the context, I don't even remember the context of the conversation. It was like over a year ago at this point. But Katie mentioned that I said I that. Think I was like, like, you're sitting in your office and you, you had it like, you had like a vision board kind yes. of like 
trendy with pictures. Is that the first time you saw it? I, I think so. I okay. am not 100% sure, but that's all I can remember. Yeah, Katie pointed out that like I said this or I had this on my, I actually made a post about it the other day about my vision board. And I was like, yeah, I did say that. You just got to do the damn thing sometimes. And then that's where the tagline came from. We started talking about t-shirts. We were like, yes, this is going to be a thing. <laughs> that's right. And here we are. Here we are. The shift method is doing very, very well. Thanks to people like Katie for helping me along the way. <laughs> and I think that's a good place to end. Katie, I know you got to bounce because you got some going on. Can you let the people know where they can find you? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much, Damien, for having me on here. This was awesome conversation as usual with you. Always really enjoy the topics that we kind of delve into. So this was of great. Course, and I, I hope the people listening um, got a thing or two from this. And and if you want to reach out to me further, you could find me on Instagram at Katie Sedona. So K-A-T-I-E-S-E-D-O-N-A. Um, I post a lot of things regarding research, um, my graduate education here at USF, um, some things with my personal training clients and strength and conditioning, a little bit of nutrition here and there. Um, but yeah, if you want to reach out to me, anything regarding exercise science, nutrition, research, coaching, cereal, um, that would be awesome. So thank you so much again, Damien. I, I really enjoyed being on here today. Absolutely. And thank you, Katie. And like she mentioned, if you guys are looking for someone to talk to or get some guidance from, what you see on this podcast is what you get. Katie is very authentic, a lot of experience. Please reach out to her if you have any questions. Uh, for me, as you all know, it's the underscore shift underscore method. That's the Instagram handle. Head over to theshiftmethod.org. You can check out services. We got merchandise. As I mentioned, we got t-shirts, we got masks, and we got blog posts that come out every couple of weeks. So you guys can be caught up on that. Again, theshiftmethod.org and as well as the underscore shift underscore method for the Instagram handle. Katie, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. And I hope you have a good one. Awesome. Thank you. You too, Damien. Take care. Take care.